Okay. Show me. Sometimes that is better. Welcome to the Prairie Land Paranormal Podcast. Be sure you never, ever scream. A podcast where we will explore the dark corners of our world, the weird, the creepy, and the strange. There are no accidents, no coincidences. I am your host, Eric Carrier. The Boogeyman is real. And they must be coming night. My co-host is Jessica Carrier. Thank you for joining us for a journey into the unknown. Be one of us. Let's get started with today's show. Hey guys, welcome to the show. First of all, Happy New Year and welcome to 2022. We hope that you all had a fantastic holiday break, and we want to welcome you to Season 3 of the Prairie Land Paranormal Podcast. I am your host, Eric Carrier, and I am here, as always, with my wife and my co-host, Jessica. Jess, any New Year wishes for our listeners? Actually, I really hope that this year will be a great year for everyone, that it will improve upon and become better than 2020 and 2021. I don't think it can get much worse than either of those two years. (laughs) Well, I hope it will be a lot better. Well, what do we have in store for our listeners today? Well, today we're going to be talking about the Montauk Project, which is very closely tied to our last episode, which was the Philadelphia Experiment. Really, there is just one question to answer in this episode. Did the U.S. military kidnap children, take them to Camp Hero, torture them, and conduct illicit research on them and mind control Psychic Abilities and Interdimensional Travel? Well, stay tuned and find out. All right, I am excited for this episode, but first, we have to wade through all the self-promotion you probably hate, but we are required to do as content creators. Don't worry, we'll get through it quickly. If you are a new listener and you are here for the first time, welcome. If you have been around for a while, welcome back. We know that there are a lot of shows out there that are competing for your time, and we appreciate you giving that time to us. If you like what we're doing, please consider supporting the show. If you'd like to support the show, here are a few ways you can do that. First, please share and keep sharing the show. This is by far the most important thing you can do to help our show continue to grow. Next, please remember to keep voting for us each month in the Paranormal Top 25. This is sponsored by Paranormality Magazine, and you can vote for us at paranormalitymag.com. Another way that you can support the show is to check out our merch store, or leave a tip or review. And lastly, come hang out with us on social media. We have accounts on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, and love to hang out and meet you guys there. All of those accounts, our merch store, and our tip jar can be accessed through our website at prairielandparanormalpodcast.com. Jess, was that quick enough? Yep. Is there anything else? Nope. Okay, let's get started with today's show. How does a World War II experiment to elude Nazi radar tie into experiments in mind control, time travel, interdimensional portals, and a Netflix series? Well, in short, the answer is the Montauk Project, a secret military project that is still relatively unknown and produces a motherload of conspiracy theories that are absolutely a wild ride down multiple rabbit holes. So how is it that the Montauk Project, which suggests that the U.S. military kidnapped children, took them to Camp Hero, a military installation on the far north of Long Island, tortured them, and conducted illicit and chilling research on them in mind control and psychic abilities gone overlooked? Well. Perhaps it's because the story is considered by many to be completely fictitious and is only backed by sources that are dubious, even by conspiracy theory standards. Even though the Montauk Project is likely pure fiction, it continues to make its rounds today, fueled by real stories of the CIA's own involvement in some truly disturbing experiments like the ones supposedly carried out at Montauk. The origin of the Montauk Project starts in 1992 with a self-published book by Preston B. Nichols called The Montauk Project, Experiments in Time. The book is by its own admission derived from many soft facts. Quote, some of the data you will read in this book may be considered as soft facts. Soft facts are not untrue. They're just not backed up by irrefutable documentation. A hard fact would be documented by hard physical evidence and could stand up to scrutiny. By the nature of the subject matter 
and security considerations, hard facts about the Montauk Project have been very difficult to obtain. There is also an area between soft and hard, which can be termed gray facts. These would be plausible, but not as easily provable as hard facts. It also admits this, quote, This work is being presented as nonfiction, as it contains no falsehoods to the best knowledge of the authors. However, it can also be read as pure science fiction if that is more suitable to the reader. Jess, do either of those two statements bring you any comfort to the truthfulness of this book? Maybe a little bit in that they're being honest up front, but it kind of makes me wonder how factual it is. Well, it's soft factual and gray factual, (laughs) but not hard factual. (laughs) The book, therefore, throws gas on the fire of rumors that have been around since the mid-1980s that the American military has been conducting experiments in psychological warfare on the eastern end of Long Island. The hub of this rumored research, according to Nichols, was Camp Hero. The research included experiments in mind control, telepathy, opening space-time portals, interdimensional travel, time travel, contact with alien life, and abduction of runaway children. If that's not enough, there's also Men in Black, Nazi scientists, cultists, Nikola Tesla, the invention of the internet, the creation of the AIDS virus, experimental aircraft, and cryptoid engineering, including the famed Jersey Devil. All of this, according to Nichols, was done under the authority of the U.S. military and financed by Nazi gold recovered during World War II. One may say that Nichols' tale goes all in and leaves no conspiracy stone unturned. No doubt about that. (laughs) Nichols' account details the interior of all the facilities its procedures, advanced technologies, and numerous paranormal incidents he claims to have witnessed as a project researcher. The problem? This is all based on recovered memories. Memories Nichols claims were erased. After the book's publication, others started coming forward to say that they, too, had been part of the illicit research conducted at Montauk, beginning the process of circular reinforcement that is the essential mechanism of all conspiracy theory. With so many conspiracy claims on the table, trust us when we say that untangling it all is going to be an epic undertaking. But fortunately for you, we're up to it. Preston Nichols is the reason and the main character involved in the discovery of the Montauk Project. And let me tell you, the story is pretty weird. Here is the origin in Nichols' own words, as taken from his book, The Montauk Project, Experiments in Time. The time is 1971. In 1971, I began working for BJM, a well-known defense contractor on Long Island. Through the years, I got a degree in electrical engineering and became a specialist in electromagnetic phenomena. Although I was not extraordinarily interested in the paranormal at that time, I had obtained a grant of steady mental telepathy and to determine whether or not it existed. I sought to disprove it, but I was surprised to find out that it did, in fact, exist. I began my research and found out that telepathic communication operated on principles that are strikingly similar to that of radio waves. I had discovered a wave that could be termed a telepathic wave. In some respects, it behaved like a radio wave. I set out to get the characteristics of this telepathic wave. In 1974, Preston noticed that at a certain time every day, the psychics he worked with seemed to become blocked. In 1974, I noticed a peculiar phenomenon that was common to all of the psychics that I worked with. Every day, at the same hour, their minds would be jammed. They couldn't think effectively. Suspecting that the interference was caused by an electronic signal, I used my radio equipment and correlated what came on over the airwaves at the times the psychics were non-functional. 
Whenever a 410 to 420 megahertz cycle appeared on the air, they were jammed. When a 410 to 420 megahertz cycle was off, the psychics would open back up after about 20 minutes. It was obvious that this signal was greatly impeding the ability of my psychic. I decided to trace the signal. Placing a modified TV antenna on the roof of my car, I grabbed a VHF receiver and set out looking for the source of it. I tracked it right to Montauk Point. It was coming directly from a red and white radar antenna on the Air Force Base. At first, I thought that this signal might have been generated accidentally. I checked around and found out that the base was still active. Unfortunately, security was tight and the guards wouldn't give any useful information. They said that the radar was for a project run by the FAA. Questions about the antenna went unanswered and unfortunately, I had hit a dead end. In 1984, Nichols was informed that the base was closed and he decided to go and investigate the grounds. I continued my psychic research, but didn't get anywhere on the investigation of the Montauk antenna until 1984, when a friend of mine called. He told me the place was now abandoned, and that I should go out there and check it out. I did. It was indeed abandoned, with debris strewn everywhere. The first things that caught my eye was the high-voltage equipment. I was very interested as it was a radio engineer's delight. I am a collector of ham gear and radio equipment, and I wanted to buy it. I figured it would be available cheap if I made the proper arrangement for the Surplus Disposal Agency in Michigan. After several weeks of research by the Surplus Disposal Agency, no one officially admitted to owning that equipment, and as far as they were concerned, the equipment was abandoned and I could go in and take whatever I wanted. I was given a piece of paper which appeared to be official and told to show it to anyone who might question my presence in the area. I was referred to the caretaker of the Montauk Air Force Base who would show me around. Things really started to get weird when he went to pick up the equipment with a psychic friend named Brian. A week or so later I made the trip to Montauk with a fellow named Brian. Brian was a psychic who had helped me with my research. As we forged around the base, we went in two different directions. I went into a building and saw a man who appeared to be homeless. He told me that he had been living in the building ever since the base was abandoned. He also said that there had been a big experiment a year earlier, and that everything had gone crazy. Apparently, he'd never gotten over it himself. In fact, the man recognized me, but I had no idea who he was or what he was talking about. He said he had been a technician at the base, and that he'd been AWOL. He had deserted the project just before the base had been abandoned. He spoke about a big beast appearing and frightening everyone away. He told me a lot about the technical details of the machinery and how things worked. He also said something that was very strange. He told me that he remembered me well. In fact, I had been his boss on the project. I left the man and found Brian. He was complaining that things weren't right and that he was feeling some very funny vibrations. I decided to ask him for a psychic reading right there. His reading was strangely similar to what the homeless man had just told me. He spoke of irregular weather patterns, mind control, and a vicious beast. He mentioned animals being affected and crashing through windows. Mind control was a main focus of Brian's reading. The reading was interesting, but we were there to cart out the equipment. Things continued to get eerie as Nichols kept getting recognized by people he didn't know. Because of this, and Brian's readings, he started an official investigation, which showed that lots of weird phenomena had been reported happening around the Montauk area. A few weeks later, I was surprised by a visitor who barged into my lab. He came straight to the lab, which was in back of the house. He claimed to know me and said that I had been his boss. He went on to explain many of the technical details of the Montauk project. His story corroborated what psychics and the homeless man had told me. I didn't recognize him but listened to all he had to say. I was sure that something had gone on at the Montauk base, but I didn't know what. My personal involvement was evident, but I still didn't consider it very seriously. I was, however, puzzled by different people recognizing me. I had to make it my business to investigate Montauk. 
So, I went out and camped on the beach for a week or so. I went to bars and asked the locals for stories about the base. I talked to people on the beach, on the street, wherever I could find them. I asked all about the strange activities that were purported to have occurred. He continues. Six different people said that it had snowed in the middle of August. There were listings of hurricane-force winds that came out of nowhere. Thunderstorms, lightning, and hail were also reported under unusual circumstances. They would appear when previously there had been no meteorological evidence to expect such. There were other unusual stories besides the weather. These included stories of animals coming into the town in mass, and sometimes crashing through the windows. By this time, I had taken different psychics out to the base. The stories confirmed what psychics had been able to determine through their own sensitivity. I finally got the idea to speak to the chief of police, who also informed me of strange happenings. For example, crimes would be committed in a two-hour period. Then, all of a sudden, nothing. Keep in mind that Montauk is a very small town. After the quiet, another two-hour period of crimes would occur. Teams were also reported to suddenly group in mass for two hours, then mysteriously separate and go their own ways. The chief couldn't account for it, but his statements lined up perfectly with what the psychics had indicated about mind control experiments. Jess, I'd have to say that, you know, the animals coming into town and busting through windows and the strange weather may be unusual in some way, but I'm not convinced that teens gathering for two hours and then mysteriously dissipating <laughs> is something unusual. Well, having teenagers, we, we kind of know that's not unusual. <laughs> in November of 1984, Nichols meets one of the other main characters of the Montauk Project story, Duncan Cameron. In November of 84, another man appeared at my lab door. His name was Duncan Cameron. He had a piece of audio equipment, and he wanted to know if I could help him with it. He quickly became absorbed in the group of psychics I had working with me at the time. Duncan showed a keen aptitude for such work and was extremely enthusiastic. At one point, I surprised Duncan by telling him that I would be taking him someplace to see if he recognized it. I drove him to the Montauk Air Force Base. He not only recognized it, he told me what the purpose was for each of the various buildings. He knew exactly where the bulletin board and the mess hall was and many other such minute details. Obviously, he had been there before. He knew the place like the back of his hand. He provided new information about the nature of the base and what his own function had been. When Duncan entered the transmitter building, he suddenly went into a trance and began spitting out information. This was curious, but I had to shake him repeatedly to break him out of it. When I brought him back to the lab, I applied techniques that I'd learned to help Duncan unblock his memories. He continued. Layers of programming were now coming out of Duncan. A lot of information concerned the Montauk project. Many different things were revealed until, finally, a shocking program came straight to the awareness of Duncan's conscious mind. He blurted out that he had been programmed to come to my place, befriend me, and then, kill me, and blow up my entire lab. All my work would be totally destroyed. Duncan appeared to be more outraged at all this than I was. He swore that he would no longer help those who had programmed him, and he has worked with me ever since. Further work with Duncan revealed even more bizarre information. He had been involved in the Philadelphia experiment. He said that he and his brother Edward had served aboard the USS Eldridge as members of the crew. A lot of things surfaced as a result of my work with Duncan. I started to remember things about the Montauk project and was now certain I'd been involved. I just didn't know how or why. I found Duncan to be an extremely operational psychic and through him I was able to confirm new information. In July 1986, he decided to go public with this information and is joined in his investigation by a well-known but unnamed senator. The senator's investigation turned up some interesting findings. In July of 1986, we decided that I should go to the United States Psychotronics Association in Chicago and talk about it. I did, and it created an uproar. Word got around fast to those who didn't want the Montauk story to be revealed. One of the associates knew the nephew of a senior senator from the Southwest. The nephew, who we will call Lenny, worked for the senator. We gave the information to Lenny, who passed it to his uncle. 
Different information included pictures of the orders given to the different military personnel, which we had found strewn about the base. The senator did a personal investigation and verified that military technicians had in fact been assigned to the base. The senator also discovered that the base was decommissioned, derelict, and mothballed since 1969. Having served his country as an Air Force general, he was particularly interested to know why Air Force personnel were working on a derelict base, and where did the money come from to open up the base and run it? When the senator completed his investigation, he couldn't find any trace of government funding, no appropriations, no oversight committees, and no payments. Nichols' investigation led him to believe that he was living in two separate time tracks, and in 1989, he decided to start investigating his own employer, which he suspected to be involved somehow. My memory improved while working with Duncan, and I eventually realized that I must have been existing on two separate time tracks. As bizarre as it may sound, it was the only sensible explanation under the circumstances. It was now 1989. I started to roam around the plant at UJM, where I was still working. I would talk to different people and dredge up what information I could without trying to appear suspicious. I would also walk around and just sense my own personal gut reaction to the different places in the plant. I became particularly irritated when I would come to a certain room. My innards would just churn. I sensed very strongly that there was something in that room that was disturbing me. I had to investigate it. I rang the doorbell and was told that I couldn't come in. It was a high security area. Reportedly, only 10 people at the plant had the proper clearance to be in that room. I found that virtually no one knew anything about it. Finally, I did find two people who'd been in there, but they said they couldn't tell me anything. One of them must have turned me in because the security personnel visited me shortly thereafter. It was time to lay low for a while. About a year into the investigation, the high security area was suddenly shut down, and Nichols was finally free to investigate. About a year after my futile investigation, the room was totally cleared out. The doors were open, and anyone could walk right in. It was obvious that there had been all sorts of equipment. Dirt markings revealed that four round things had stood on the floor. I presumed they were coil structures. It was clear that there had been a console. There was also a huge power line that still ran into the room. The entire place gave me the creep. Then, strange wounds and bandages started to appear on Nichols' hands. There was a period when, all of a sudden, a band-aid would appear on my hand. It hadn't been there 15 minutes ago. I couldn't remember putting it on. This happened more than a few times. One day, I had been sitting at my desk and my hand suddenly started to ache. The back of the hand was sore, and there was a band-aid on it. I absolutely knew that I had not put that band-aid on, nor had I had it put on. I became very suspicious. I got up and went down to the nurse. I said to her, this may sound wacky, but was I in here for a band-aid? No, you weren't in here, she told me. I asked her where I'd gotten it and she said, you must have gotten it from one of the first aid kits. Don't you remember? I'm just trying to figure it out, I said, and I walked out. I thought in my mind, I'm not going to get a band-aid at BJM except from the company nurse. I wanted a record, so I made a conviction that I would never use a first aid kit. I eventually remembered the reason I had sustained so many injuries to my hands. In my alternate reality, I frequently had to move different equipment. I was just about the only one who could move it as most people would go wacky when they'd get near it. For some reason, it didn't seem to bother me, but it was heavy and hard to maneuver. With no one to assist me, bruised hands and band-aids became a regular occurrence. I kept to my conviction not to use any band-aids from first aid kits. I continued to check with the nurse when they appeared, and the records indicated I'd never been to her. As this was an irregularity, she must have reported it to security. They visited me and said, Why are you asking about band-aids, Mr. Nichols? I knew better than to pursue that anymore. Unusual occurrences continued to happen to Nichols, and unfamiliar people continued to recognize him. Then, using intuition alone, Nichols was able to penetrate a high-security area and entered a room 
that gave him the proof he had been looking for. Streams of unfamiliar people continued to recognize me. I began to get executive mail that would normally be for the vice president of a company. For instance, I would be asked to come to a conference concerning pilots. I didn't know what they were talking about. I was also called to meetings with a certain executive. He always appeared very agitated whenever we spoke. Most of the inquiries I received from these people were about the Moonbeam project. I didn't know what it was. But one day, I had an intuitive urge. The basement of the BJM building in Melville had a very high security area. Consciously, I had no clearance to be in that area, but I walked in anyway. Normally, when you walk from one security area to another, you must hand the guard your badge and he gives you another badge, with a different designation. This permits you to walk in the secure area. I simply went in and gave him my badge from the lesser security area, and what do you know? He gave me a badge with my name on it. I had a hunch and it worked. I walked around and let the churning in my gut determine what direction I should go in. I ended up in a posh mahogany paneled office. There was a large desk with a nameplate on it that read, Preston B. Nichols, Assist Project Director. This was the first tangible physical proof I had that something out of the ordinary was definitely occurring. I sat at the desk and looked through all the papers. It was impossible to take the papers out of the place, as I knew I would be searched very thoroughly on my way out of this high security area. So, I committed everything I saw to memory, to the best of my ability. I had an entire second career here, that I knew almost nothing about. Sifting through the material, I spent about six hours in my newly discovered office. Then, I decided I'd better get back to my regular job before the day was through. I handed back my badge and walked out. A couple of days went by before I decided it was time to go back and check things out again. Once more, I handed the guard my badge, but this time he didn't give me anything back. He said, by the way, Mr. Roberts wants to see you. A man, Mr. Roberts, came out of an office that had project director written on it. He looked at me and said, what do you want to come in here for, sir? To get to my other desk, I replied. He said, you don't have any other desk here. I pointed to the office where my desk had been. But as I entered the room with the project director, I found it to be gone. In the couple of days since I've been there, they had removed every trace of myself from the room. Somebody must have realized that I had visited my office when I wasn't supposed to. I had entered in an ordinary state of mind which was not to their liking. They apparently had not turned on the program, switching me to an alternate reality for that particular day and must have been wondering why I'd shown up. They must have concluded that the process was leaking and that I was somehow able to remember my alternate existence. As a result, they stopped everything. I was pulled aside through security channels and was told that if I breathed the word of what I'd seen, I'd be locked up in jail and the key thrown away. I tried to think of other strange incidents that had occurred. I'd kept a suspicious eye and had been experiencing two separate existences. How the hell had I been at Montauk and working at BJM, apparently during the same time period? Finally, in 1990, Nichols, while working on another project, says his memory fully returned and the entire Montauk project blew open. I had already arrived at the conclusion that I must have been working two jobs simultaneously, because there was a period of time when I'd come home and be totally exhausted. At this point, all of what you have read was one huge, confused mess in my mind. I knew that I'd been working on two separate timelines, or maybe more. In fact, I discovered quite a bit, but it was more confused than clear. I was, however, able to make a major breakthrough in 1990. I had begun constructing a Delta T antenna on the roof of my laboratory. A Delta T antenna is an octahedral antenna structure that can shift time zones. It was designed to bend time. One day, I was sitting on the roof and soldering all the loops together into the relay boxes, which relayed the signal from the antenna downstairs to the lab. Apparently, as I sat there and held the wires together to solder them, the time functions were causing my mind to shift. The more soldering I did, the more I became aware. Then, one day, the whole memory line blew open for me. The antenna was stressing time, bending it, and enough bend was created so that I was subconsciously in two timelines. This was my memory breakthrough.
Nichols was then fired by BJM in 1990. By early June 1990, all my key memories have come back. From July, I was laid off. Subsequent to my firing, all of my close connections were removed as well. After having worked at BJM for the better part of two decades, I no longer had any link for friends to the company. My information sources had been effectively started. All right, folks, stick around after the break, and we will be back to talk to you about how the Montauk Project intersects with the Philadelphia Experiment, how they opened up portals to travel through time. We'll talk more about the Montauk Chair, the Montauk Boys, and how this whole project came crashing down. How many greys do you think you've killed over the years? 19 pretty much for sure. Because that day, even though I was a kid, I knew for a fact that what we had just witnessed wasn't human. The only way that I could describe it was that there was, there was a shadow stood there. And I believe that it's potentially, I'm not saying 100% definitely, but potentially a real abduction caught on video camera. Join Ash and me every Tuesday as we explore some of the lesser-known but fascinating unusual stories from our unknown world. With the latest paranormal and UFO news, a look back at historical cases and special guests joining us along the way, we aim to pursue the paranormal from a different point of view. Pursuit of the Paranormal with Ash and Greg. Welcome back. Let's start the second part of our show here with discussing how the Montauk Project and the Philadelphia Experiment are intertwined. We talked about the Philadelphia Experiment and covered it in detail in episode 41. So for a full detailed story of the Philadelphia Experiment, please refer back to that episode. For the purposes of this show, Jessica, can you give just a brief summary of the Philadelphia Experiment? Yeah, you may remember that the U.S. military successfully rendered the USS Eldridge invisible, not only to radar, but completely invisible to the naked eye. The ship was then transported through a hole in space and time to Norfolk, Virginia, more than 200 miles away, before reappearing in Philadelphia. So Duncan and Edward Cameron are also important figures in this story. And so is Al Bielik. You may remember that Al Bielik, in 1988, watched a movie called The Philadelphia Experiment that was actually produced and came out in 1984 to be struck with this overwhelming feeling of deja vu and that he somehow had some involvement in this experiment. So, like Nichols... He used some new age therapies and some regression hypnosis to try to restore some of his repressed memories. And what he came to find out was that he was not only involved in the Philadelphia experiment, but he was also involved in this Montauk project. One of these repressed memories that Bielik recovered was his true identity, which he believed to be Edward Cameron the brother of Duncan Cameron. They were both crew members on the USS Eldridge in 1943, and uh, they actively took part in the Philadelphia Experiment. After reclaiming his memories, Bielik started to share his story at MUFON conferences and ended up meeting Preston Nichols and starting a friendship sometime around 1970. Bielik claims that he worked with Nichols on a project called the Montauk Chair, which was a mind-reading device that was central to the entire Montauk project. Bielik, like Nichols, also believed that after this project, his memories had been wiped by the government. Jess, share a little bit more information about the Montauk chair. Yeah, the Montauk chair, according to Nichols, basically enhanced psychic powers using electromagnetism. A person would sit in this chair 
And that usually ended up being Duncan Cameron, who had some significant psychic abilities, including the ability to manifest physical objects with his mind using this device. Some of the other things they were able to do with this chair were to conduct mind control experiments and even open portals through space and time. Sounds like a pretty powerful chair. Yeah, I want one of those. This doesn't sound like a standard lazy boy. Where exactly do you pick up one of these chairs? I don't think Lowe's has one. Definitely not. Nichols actually describes the very first experiment that they did with the chair that was called the seeing eye. This is uh, also in his book. Nichols wrote this. Their first experiment was called the seeing eye. With a lock of a person's hair or other appropriate object in his hand, Duncan could concentrate on the person and be able to see as if he was seeing through their eyes, hearing through their ears, and feeling through their body. He could actually see through other people anywhere on the planet. As far as the technology behind the chair, Nichols said it was put into action by ITT in the 1950s, but the overall development was a mystery. Although he does heavily suggest that it is alien. It is still a mystery how this technology was developed. It has been suggested that the research was aided by the Syrians, an alien race who come from the star system known as Sirius. This theory has the aliens providing the basic design and humans working it out from there. Once mind control was perfected, they moved on to using psychic powers to see if they could create physical items from thought alone. Apparently Duncan was really good at this. Here's another quote from the book. At this point, they pulled out all the stops. They had the psychic Duncan Cameron concentrate on a solid object. And guess what happened? The solid object actually precipitated out of the ether. In his mind, he would concentrate on a solid object and it would appear somewhere on the base. Whatever Duncan would visualize, the transmitter would transmit the lattice or matrix for and build enough power to materialize whatever he was thinking of. Every single point to where he could witness to a particular spot on the base, at that spot an object would materialize. In other words, if he would hold an object in his hand and or visualizer, it would appear at the given spot. They actually had discovered pure creation out of thought with the use of the transmitter. Now, if you think that mind control, thought creation, and alien technology are the most shocking parts of this story, that's not true. Apparently, when they were able to start opening space and time portals, they needed people to send through them. So they went out into the community of Montauk, and they started abducting young children and derelicts. Jessica, how do you feel about using children as guinea pigs? Let's just say I don't feel very good about that. <laughs> <laughs> These children were apparently all boys, and over time they became known as the Montauk Boys. They were snatched off of streets or even abducted from their homes. So needless to say, this project gets very sketchy very quickly. At least two people have claimed to have recovered traumatic memories of being Montauk boys. One of those individuals is Stuart Swerdlow, who in 2017 came forward with his story. Yeah, Swerdlow told his story to The Sun, and he claimed that not only was he a victim and a Montauk boy, but he also was subjected to horrific abuse. Quote, When the experiment started, they'd target expendable boys like orphans, runaways, or children of drug addicts the kind of kids no one would really come looking for. The aim was to fracture your mind so they could program you. They would change the temperature from very hot to very cold, starve you, then overfeed you. I remember being beaten with a wooden pole, and they loved to hold your head under water until you nearly drowned. That was effective. It makes a person likely to listen to and obey their rescuer. They also used LSD to put our brains into an altered state. Swerdlow also alleged that he saw staffers sexually abusing children in an effort to mentally break them down. He also alleged that the Montauk boys were sent through space and time portals to Mars and even back to biblical times. Here's another quote. In the early days, 
as they were perfecting the coordinates, a lot of boys were simply lost. I still have nightmares about it today. I wasn't there when the Montauk chair was shut off, but I felt it, like I'd suddenly been unplugged from electricity. Another person who has come forward claiming to be a Montauk boy is Joe Lafreno. Joe came forward with his story in 2020 and shared it with the New York Post. Joe grew up in Montauk and believes that he was abducted and abused during the summer of 1980 and possibly during the summer of 1981 when he was only 12 or 13 years old. Just like Nichols, Bielik, and Swerdlow, Lafreno was only able to recall this experience under hypnosis. We've had some discussion in the past on our thoughts on hypnosis, and I think you guys probably realize that uh, we're a bit skeptical of that. Suggestion can kind of be high with this form of regression therapy. Yes, and for me, that is my main problem with it. For instance, when Al Bielik underwent regression hypnosis therapy, was he actually recalling his experiences with the Philadelphia experiment, or was he recalling his experience of watching the movie The Philadelphia Experience? I can't answer that. And because of that, I am skeptical of regression hypnosis therapy. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, needless to say, if these youngsters actually went through any of this process, that is absolutely horrible. And even though I don't like the idea of hypnosis regression therapy, I don't want to undermine these experiences that they may have experienced. Yes, it's terrible what possibly could have happened. And if accessing these memories helps them recover from the trauma of the experience, then we're all for that. One of the interesting things about Lafreno's story is that he talks about a local boy that he remembers who rode around on a bike and was just kind of out there recruiting kids to come out to Montauk. And that matches very closely with Nichols' claims as well. Lafreno shared in his interview that a local boy no one knew very well invited him to bike out to the base where two men were waiting. The men, dressed in civilian clothes, ushered the boys into a sunken house on the base and later brought them underground through Battery 113, one of the sealed gunneries left from World War II. Nichols says this in his book. In addition to the derelict, the researchers also used kids for some reason. I'm not sure what exactly the purpose was, but there was one kid at Montauk who would go out and get other kids and bring them to the project. He was like a tractor beam. He lived in Montauk and would circulate around very effectively. Under hypnosis, Lafreno states that he remembers lying on a table with electrodes coming out of him. He says that there were up to 50 other kids there and that he believes that some of them were even killed. He says, quote, they analyzed us like animals. Lafreno's belief that some of the kids were killed is not too far off from Nichols' own report from his book. Nichols says that even some of these kids were sent into the future. Some kids returned home, some didn't. The kids chosen were between 10 and 16, or maybe 18 at the oldest and 9 at the youngest. Most were just about to reach puberty or had just finished it. They were usually blonde, blue-eyed, tall, and light-skinned. They fit the Aryan stereotype. To my knowledge, there were no girls in this group. A later investigation showed that Montauk had a neo-Nazi connection and that the Nazis were still in the Aryan camp. We don't know where the kids went, what they were educated in or programmed for. Whether they came back or not is still a mystery. What information is available is that they sent every raw recruit into the future to 6037 AD always to the same point to what appeared to be a dead city in ruins. Everything was stationary, not unlike a dreamlike state. There were no signs of life. In the center of the city was a square with a gold horse on a pedestal. There were inscriptions on that pedestal and recruits were sent there to read what they said. Each recruit would interpret and report. In his book, Nichols says that the project may have abandoned between three to 10,000 people in time. Lost forever. Those are not small numbers. No, I'm like wondering why no one really realized that so many people were missing. I guess if it, it makes sense if it were people that were living on the street, 
or maybe like you said earlier, children of drug addicts? That still seems like a lot of people to me to go missing without someone noticing. Yes, I agree. So like all government projects, this project had to finally come to an end. And it came to an end in the early 1980s when Nichols says that things finally went too far for even the researchers who were responsible for the program. So apparently child abduction and Nazi-like experiments didn't cross that line? Nope, but guess what did? What? The Philadelphia experiment. How is that? Well, according to Nichols, the project was shut down after Nichols and Duncan Cameron, along with other participants, rebelled against it after realizing that messing with time and space was a bad idea. This realization occurred in 1983 when the Montauk Project and the Philadelphia Experiment crosses paths. Here are Nichols' own words. On August 5, 1983, we were given a directive to run the transmitter nonstop. Just turn it on and let it go continuously. We followed the orders, but nothing out of the ordinary occurred until August 12th. Then something very strange happened. All of a sudden, the equipment appeared to drop into sync with something else. We didn't know what function the system was now attuned to. But at that point, the USS Eldridge appeared through the portal. We had locked up with the Eldridge. I'm not sure if this was a pure accident. But if the Montauk researchers were trying to hook up with the Eldridge, the attempt had to be made on this exact day. This is due to the 20-year biorhythms of the planet Earth, which was the discovery made in the process of these experiments, and the Eldridge experiment having occurred on August 12, 1943. At this point, the Duncan from 1943 appeared and could be seen through the time portal along with his own brother. Both were crew members of the USS Eldridge. We kept the Duncan of 1983 from seeing himself so as to avoid a time paradox and resultant negative effects. The project had now reached apocalyptic proportions. Natural laws were being violated, and it seemed everyone involved felt uncomfortable. So there's the answer to your question, Jessica. <laughs> it wasn't the child abductions. It wasn't the Nazi-like experiments. It was having two Duncan Camerons in the same timeline that they were worried that they were going to open up a paradox and cause major problems with space and time. So it was at this time that Duncan and Nichols and Bielik decided to sabotage the project? Yes, it was at that time, but not during the time where they were torturing kids. <laughs> It is kind of interesting how they actually sabotaged the project. And here it is in Nichols' own words. We finally decided we'd had enough of the whole experiment. The contingency program was activated by someone approaching Duncan while he was in the chair and simply whispering the time is now. At this moment, he let loose a monster from his subconscious. And the transmitter actually portrayed a hairy monster. It was big, hairy, hungry, and nasty but it didn't appear underground in the null point. It showed up somewhere on the base. It would eat anything it could find. And it smashed everything inside. Several different people saw it, but almost everyone described a different beast. So while the beast was rampaging the base, Nichols destroyed all of the equipment, and this basically removed this creature from this existence, and send it back to its original dimension. Jess, does this sound a lot like Stranger Things? Yes, it does. You want to know why it sounds a lot like Stranger Things? Why is that? Because, like we talked about in episode 41, the Montauk Project was the primary source material for season one. I think I mentioned also in that episode that the original series name for Stranger Things was Montauk. Yes, I remember you mentioning that. So, Jess, what do you think? Is the Montauk Project truth or fiction? You know, a lot of fiction has a basis in truth or some truth about it. And it almost sounds like some of this could be true, but then it just kind of crosses the line for me that is just really hard for me to believe. So the reason why a lot of this probably sounds true is because we know that our own government has been 
involved in some shady stuff. Yes. Especially when it comes to research. Yeah, things like MKUltra, you know, with LSD, and Project Stargate with the research that went into remote viewing, that shady things have happened and that our government has been behind some of these shady things. Yeah, so it's hard to decide when it comes to our government what is too much or what is too shady. When you are at the top of the chain and there's no ethics committee and no oversight, you can kind of do whatever you want to and get away with it, I guess. Which is exactly what our government has probably been doing for years and years and years. Now, when we say our government, we probably don't mean most of our government. We mean people who have gone beyond and are doing secretive things that most people don't know about. Yes, the so-called black projects. Yes, Mayor What's-His-Face is uh, probably not behind this. And probably knows nothing about it. All right, folks. So tell us what you think. Is the Montauk Project true or is it fiction? We would love to hear what you have to say on the subject. So leave a comment. In conclusion, while some conspiracy theorists consider the Montauk Project story to be a fabrication, they aren't entirely convinced by the U.S. military's insistence that the Camp Hero and Air Force Station facilities were entirely above reproach either. Even locals, such as Paul Monty, say that there is no doubt stories have been embellished. But he doesn't doubt that things went on there in the Cold World years. Even today, the base is patrolled and watched. They obviously don't want people in there even now. So perhaps reports that the old radar still turns from time to time aren't just eerie, but partially true. And perhaps it's too early to write off the Montauk Project and the Philadelphia Experiment stories entirely as false. All right, folks, that is going to do it for us. We will see you next time. All right, folks, that is the end of this episode. We want to thank you for joining us and let you know that we appreciate you listening. If you have enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing through your favorite podcast player. You can also find us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you would like to share an experience, be on the show, or submit a story, you can do that through our email at prairielandparanormalpodcast at gmail.com or through our website at www.prairielandparanormalpodcast.com. So, until next time, remember, don't be normal if you can be paranormal.